If you're just tuning into this episode and you're reading the title wondering, is this episode for me? I would encourage you to keep listening because Faye has an amazing way of showing how alcoholism can affect everyone in the community, not just the people drinking alcohol. So before we dive in, I want to share Faye's mantra with you. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Let's go meet Faye Zenoff. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. In this episode, Faye Zenoff recommends Eating in the Light of the Moon, How Women Can Transform Their Relationship with Food Through Myths, Metaphors, and Storytelling by Anita Johnson. And if you want to read the book for free with a 30-day trial membership to Audible, just go to audibletrial.com slash handle everything and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Just go to www.audibletrial.com slash handle everything. Welcome to the Handle Everything podcast, where people who have a lot on their plate come to learn how to open doors to opportunities by handling it all in a healthy way. I'm your host, Tara Bradford, a former ICU nurse turned executive coach. Faye Zenoff is an addiction recovery consultant and coach helping organizations create healthier cultures and environments by removing unconscious biases and stigma from the workplace so that employees can stay healthy, safe, and supported. Welcome to the Handle Everything podcast, Faye. I am so glad to be here. Thank you. So I start off every interview by asking, how full is your plate? Can you give us a quick peek into your day-to-day life? I know right now is not a normal day because we're sitting here in the middle of COVID-19, so it's a little bit different than normal, but feel free to tell us what it's like right now. Yeah, thanks. Great question. Well, for sure, it's an unusual time, but because I work out of my home, even in regular healthy times, the way I approach my day in terms of all that I'm juggling is I look at the different parts of myself, work, self, home, loved ones. And so part of my day is spent on business development. Part of my day is spent supporting current clients. Part of my day is spent staying healthy myself. And that's mind, body, soul, finances. And then part of my day is spent in service of others, taking care of my home and then, you know, reaching out to my loved ones. That's awesome that you have that schedule kind of built in already with priorities and things that you want to focus on each day. And it seems like a really well-rounded plan. Yeah, I really do have a daily check-in where I've created a sheet for myself where I have each of those parts of my healthy life identified. And I check in on each of those, some of the things I'd like to accomplish and some of the things that I'd like to pay attention to. And I put them side by side so that I can really acknowledge that taking care of my physical, mental, and spiritual health is as important as taking care of you know, my deliverables to current clients or my outreach and service to others or my upkeep of home. So it is a way for me to have structure 
and an expansive understanding of what it means to be fully alive and engaged in my life. Even with a great plan and having everything really prioritized and organized, do you ever find that things happen that don't go according to plan? And if so, does that ever make you feel overwhelmed or stressed? Oh, great question. Absolutely. (laughs) Most of the time, things don't go as planned. And so it's about having resiliency and being able to go with the flow. But it's also for me, I need to do what's in front of me, do the next right thing. And I leave the results up to how it turns out. I'm not as concerned with what the end product is as much as showing up for what's in front of me. So I try to get in front of things by doing meta meditation and gratitude lists and exercise and prayer. You know, a lot of the things that are on my list when things are super stressful and I start having negative internal dialogue with myself or feel overwhelmed, I will reach for some tools that I have to remind myself that I can handle this. And, you know, I just have to do what's in front of me. And what does that experience of stress feel like? How do you know? Mm -hmm. What are the signs that it's happening? Yeah. Usually my heart will start pounding. I'll find I have a busyness and a buzziness in my head. I have shortness of breath. And as I referenced just now, there's usually some negative self-talk taking place and I'm absorbed with myself, meaning thinking about how this will affect me or I can't get my stuff done. So Mm. that's usually when I realize I'm out of balance or in stress. Okay, that makes sense. Because sometimes the self-talk is running in the background and we don't even notice it happening. So that's a really good point that you make. And I think as it relates to stress, we've all been in situations in the past where it has been really stressful for us. And I know that you've had a situation in your life or maybe more than one where you can look back and say that really shaped who I am today and the work that I'm doing and why it's meaningful. Do you feel comfortable telling us about a time when you were under a lot of pressure and how that's turned into an opportunity? Oh, absolutely. I would say that some of the strategies that I used from the time I was a teenager was reaching for substance and reaching for relationship to soothe me. And that subsequently led to a substance use disorder. I became addicted to alcohol. And I was a very high-functioning alcoholic, if you were, meaning I was blessed with opportunity and skills and capabilities and had a great support system. So I was able to, on the outside, look very successful kind of traditionally, But inside, I was very stressed out and the tools I was using, my solutions, if you will, were actually very harmful. And it got to a place where I needed to ask for help and not handle it myself and find recovery. And when I did that and I truly surrendered, meaning I was truly open to having others help me, not thinking I could figure this out alone, I found this 
freedom and a whole broad spectrum of resources and community to support me going through this recovery process. And as a result, it really did influence and change my career. I used to be very involved. I worked in finance. I worked in tech. I was very involved in very achievement oriented and kind of proving that I could accomplish things and that I could grow things. And it was very me, me, me driven. Once I got into recovery, I became much more aware of wanting to be of service in terms of helping to create healthier work cultures and environments so more people could live healthily and work healthily. And so I moved into the nonprofit sector to work in the recovery field and then from there built my own consulting firm to offer my expertise to organizations. So something that was my greatest shame, the secret that I held, became my greatest asset from which I can draw to help others. That's an incredible journey and thank you for sharing it with us. And a couple of things stood out to me as you were talking because life and work as we know it has changed for the short term, but maybe forever in that people are physically distancing. And mm -hmm. so asking for help might feel challenging because we're not able to be in groups of people like a support group in person. And also work has changed too. And I know from past conversations that you and I have had, just comparing our experiences working for other companies, it has been very normal for people to want to grab a drink after work, meaning an alcoholic drink, not a Coke or Pepsi or soda. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And to use that time to connect and to bond with their coworkers and team build and things like that. So as we are now in this virtual setting with work and feeling distanced from people physically, how would you recommend that people find support now? And I'll just leave it at that. I have more questions. Okay. <laughs> sure. Well, so I heard a lot in that question. And I think there's how do we find support if we're struggling? And that could be, you know, going to our HR or our EAP if our organizations offer those, having the courage to reach out and say, I'm wanting to know what kind of resources are available now. And I think most organizations seem to be aware that regardless of anything else going on in life prior to this COVID, the situation we're in now is causing stress, the uncertainty and the isolation and the new kinds of pressures of balancing our obligations at home or you know, our new financial stressors. So there is a whole new awareness within organizations that I'm seeing about the need to provide more resources, more empathy, more compassion for our employees and our teams. So in terms of the individual who is feeling stressed out, I believe it's always a good idea to know what insurance you have through your employer or yourself to see what resources are available to you. But there's also many, many resources online to find community and to find individuals, whether it's to download an app that has to do with mindfulness or to sign up to be part of a drop-in 
community of people who want to get together and share solutions, there is no shortage of online community and online resources. So that's one thing now more than ever to move out of our comfort zone and ask for more resources and then to try them out. But there are also ways that teams and organizations can create opportunities to check in, whether it's a you know check in once a week or check in once a day, where you have a team call and you can use the opportunity to you know share a book that you're reading or show each other your workspace or share recipes you know whereas historically EAP was only accessed by you know i think it was on average it's 6% of any workforce is using their company's EAP for all kinds of stressors now every employee is under stress because of this unusual situation that we're in with this social distancing and the COVID-19. So rather than having individuals have to seek out support, which is still really important to be able to do and to know how to do, I believe the opportunity is there for managers and teams and organizations to be even more empathic and offer more outreach in terms of creating opportunities for virtual togetherness, whether it's a virtual cafeteria, we share a meal together, or sharing your favorite Spotify playlist, or discussing whatever challenges we might have, but have it be focused on living healthily and successfully, not about productivity. Those are incredible suggestions and I love them. And I love that throughout that entire list of support resources that are available, you didn't talk about AA. And when I say AA, I mean Alcoholics Anonymous. When we're talking about wondering if you have a substance abuse problem or if it's okay that I'm having a glass of wine every night because I'm home every day and it feels like Groundhog Day and I'm not thinking about how much I'm drinking. And it might be more than normal, but does that mean it's a problem? Like, what does that mean? And I think people might be feeling guilty for having a glass of wine every night or two, or they might not even be thinking about it. So if we look at recovery and open recovery when it's not COVID-19, How does someone even know that it could be affecting their life, their lifestyle, their health, their relationships? Does it have to result in something like a wake-up call or something bad happening? Or is there a way to know? You know, it's such an important question. And I think that is so individual for each of us. I mean, of course, we have guidelines about what constitutes risky drinking versus what constitutes low risk drinking. And I want to be clear here that drinking is risky, that the best way to stay healthy and safe is not to have alcohol because alcohol is ethanol and ethanol is a poison. And you know, the number one use of ethanol is rocket fuel. So you know, many of us know that the effect the alcohol has on us gives us a sense of ease. But that sense of ease is actually because our brain is getting dumbed down. And sometimes we need that. And the question I have for people is, what is the healthiest way to do that? Let us have 
awareness of what we choose to put in our body, what we choose to do. And it's up to each one of us to determine, does this cause harm to myself or others? And some people think harm is I got a DUI or I got called into my manager's office for acting you know, poorly during a gathering at work. It need not be some severe consequence. It is an inner knowing that I wonder if I am making healthy and wise choices, which is a good thing for all of us to do anyway in terms of just audit our lifestyles periodically. I think right now in COVID-19, many of us are indulging in more sugar or more alcohol or more Netflix, and that's really okay because it gives us a sense of relief and ease as long as it doesn't lead us into a downward spiral psychologically or physically or interpersonally. When those downward spirals start, it's an opportunity for us to look at, can we do it differently? And if we cannot, that's when there's an indicator that you might have a problem and you need help. And you know, you don't need to be abusing substance to have a problem. And in this culture, having a problem is often seen as shameful rather than, hey, I am doing something that is not in my best interest and I want to make a change and I need some support about how to do that. And that could be like, you know, I want to learn how to run a marathon. And I need to work with others who have done that so we can know all the conditioning. It's not just about going out there and running, right? We need to know that we have a healthy body. We have strong muscles. We know how to stretch after running and create endurance. And so too with changing our behaviors and our habits, learning not to drink as much or as frequently or at all requires brand new ways of behaving and thinking and responding to life, especially for those of us that have been socially drinking since we were, you know, teenagers. And as you said, 70% of adults drink socially to have a sense of camaraderie mm -hmm. or, or pleasure. So reframing the idea of getting guidance, joining a group, learning from others, who choose to live a healthier lifestyle for themselves. There are plenty of people today who are sober curious, right? That they might not have a problem with alcohol, but they realize that they don't like the way it makes them feel the next day, or they're a little grumpy, or they don't think as clearly, or they regret something they've said. It doesn't have to be a big consequence. So to realize that this is one of the only substances or behaviors that when we choose to change it, we get a lot of pushback in society. People want to know why. Why don't you want to do that? If I were to say to you, I'm going to give up sugar, you wouldn't say, why, right? You'd be like, right on, good for you. I wish I could, right? There is no stigma with sugar. But with alcohol, there is stigma, even if you don't have a problem. So admitting that you want to change your habit is akin to admitting you have a problem, which translates into something's the matter, versus reframing it as, I want to live even more healthily. I want to be my best self. I want to find ways to experience joy and connection that don't require putting 
toxins in my system. Does that answer some it of your questions? Absolutely does. And I think we've spent a good portion of the interview talking about people who may need to go into recovery, but I want to widen the lens a little bit because you know that alcohol affects everybody, even the people not drinking it. And I mm -hmm. think you have a really interesting perspective on the different ways that it affects people or the different kind of archetypes of person who becomes affected by it, even if they're not the one drinking. So could you give us an idea of what those archetypes are, just for the people who we may have lost at the first part of the interview, yes. to yes. kind of loop everyone back into yes. this as a more global issue? Absolutely. And I'm going to look at the workplace. We definitely know there's the drinker who has a substance use problem. That's about 10% of the adult population, that they are actively struggling with consuming either too much or the amount that causes them harm. So we've got 10% of the adult population struggling. Concurrently, we have another 10% of the adult population that's in recovery self-identified as having had a dependence on substance, on alcohol, and no longer having that. So whether their solution was absolute abstinence or reduction, they no longer identify themselves as having a problem. So that's another 10% of the adult population. And as I just mentioned, sometimes those people are as invisible as the ones who are having the problem because of stigma and shame. But on top of that, we have another 20% of family members or people who are family members of somebody who is actively using or in early recovery who is struggling and they themselves as loved ones, codependents are stressed themselves, exhausted themselves in worry and fatigue. So people who are, let's call them the loved ones, the family members, they are also showing up to work, if you will, tired, distracted, worried, and they too are not asking for help or talking about what's going on because of the stigma. Additionally, on average, more than 20% of employees identify as having been negatively impacted, put in jeopardy by the behavior of a colleague who was using. So they have either had to cover for or carry the burden for, or they're disappointed by not having the ability to move forward as a result of somebody else's behavior. And they don't necessarily come forward and ask for support because they don't wanna throw anybody else under the bus. So we've got anywhere between, and I'm saying conservatively, 40 to 60% of the workforce impacted directly by substances, whether it's their own or somebody else's. And yet, as I said to you before, only 6% on average of employees go to their human resources or EAP for employee assistance programs for support. And those 6%, less than 1% are about substance use. So the majority of people who are impacted by substance use and addiction 
are undetected and unsupported by colleagues and their employer, which perpetuates the isolation, the exhaustion, the hopelessness, and really does impact negatively productivity, satisfaction, morale, and you know, leads to huge drain on resources and on the success of organizations and teams and also on interpersonal and personal happiness and health. One of the things that I heard you say across all of those various types of people who are affected by this is that there's this tendency to not communicate about Mm -hmm. it. It's Mm -hmm. the elephant in the room or it's your kind of secret life that's not Mm -hmm. supposed to be shared at work Mm -hmm. or you're afraid of disclosing it to your managers because you think you'll be treated differently or you think that HR will tell somebody that it will affect your livelihood, your work, your finances because you won't be able to make money. So there's a lot of fear and a lot of societal pressure and a lot of kind of tradition in sweeping things under the rug that prevents people from being open about how they're being affected by this. So what advice do you have for people who want to kind of break free from that feeling of being trapped or not having the freedom that they want to be themselves and to communicate openly about disclosure? Because I think in society, even if we turn on the news, there's a lot of stuff about being vulnerable and sharing openly and there's not really any boundaries about vulnerability and then in the media it's all about the drama and things that are polarizing and things that are controversial that are being disclosed and it often feels negative so in everyday life how can we make disclosure a little bit more tangible and realistic for people and to discuss kind of the risk involved with disclosure, the perceived risk and the actual risks? So wonderfully rich questions. Thank you. (laughs) Wonderfully rich. (laughs) Yes, no, it's wonderful. So one of the things that I believe strongly in, which is open recovery, is a call to those people who themselves are in recovery to be disclosing to be open, to help change the understanding of what recovery looks like and that recovery is possible. And there are more than 20 million adults who are in recovery from substance use disorders. And if we in roles of influence could come forward and share, not what it was like when we were struggling, but the fact that we are on the other side of it and this is possible and we have productive and healthy lives with loving relationships and we don't live in active shame or isolation or hiding. I think the power of that share is enormous to influence change. And from there, you know, we could go to our employers and when we think about diversity, belonging, and inclusion efforts, bring in the voice 
of the family member, bring in the voice of the person who is in recovery, have open dialogue with these different archetypes or subpopulations who are impacted to bring their awareness and needs to the forefront so that the employer can help create environments, culture, management practices that are supportive of the health and wellness of all of these individuals and not just think about the one who is in crisis. But to speak to your question more directly is, how do we disclose? What does that look like and why would we do it? For those of us that are in active recovery, we have learned ways to rebuild resiliency, to work through shame, to work through fear, and not that we've arrived, but that we have an active practice of using tools and resources to stay healthy and well so that we don't reach for that substance to self-soothe anymore. We have been utilizing these tools and resources. So in a time like this, when most of the world is experiencing for the first time this acute stress and isolation, those of us in recovery have already known this experience of acute stress and isolation. So we are actually really well suited and equipped and familiar to be helpful to others by letting them know the tools and resources that we use. So again, I invite people, whether they are family members or whether they are individuals themselves who are in recovery, to share more openly about the resources and practices that we use to stay healthy and well. And it need not be in the context of when I had a drinking problem. It can be, you know, I start every day with a gratitude list. And this is my truth. I'm sharing with you. I start every day writing 12 things I am grateful for. That gets my mind into a place of joy and abundance and optimism Instead of my old habit, which was waking up with a start of what do I need to accomplish today and going into fear. Now, where did I cultivate that practice? Well, I cultivated it when I was trying to learn how to not drink and how to ease my tension and ease my stress. I don't need to reveal that part of it. But those of us who are in recovery can reveal, again, here are the practices I use. I can share this with colleagues. I can share this with family members and friends. That's a small example. You know, I make sure I spend at least a half an hour every day in quiet contemplation. And it need not be in yoga poses and it need not be saying a mantra, but it's a time that I know that I'm just going to check into my inner life. I spend part of every day trying to learn something new, exercising my mind in some way. That's another example. And it's not to accomplish anything, but it's to enrich myself. I spend time every day trying to be helpful to another, but without being found out. And that is to help build character and compassion. You know, so I have resources and tools, again, that I learned, I'm just one person, right, of the 23 million adults who are in recovery that have vast resources and access to solutions that can be used by everybody right now. Again, so I invite people to look at where they might have done these practices quietly or privately or hidden as a coping mechanism 
but now they can be a leader. Now they can be a guide. So that's, yeah. I love that reframe of being someone in recovery who is open and that example of disclosure that invites people to be curious about solutions and admire the person for how they learned it. Yes. And it's not for validation, but it just reframes it for the listener so that they don't go into judgment That's and right. ask more productive questions that are supportive rather than when you overshare. We've all been in an overshare situation before, whether we're in recovery or not. And it really exposes us to some brutal questions from people who don't understand. And it just That's right. makes it more dramatic. Like, you know, did you ever show up at a work party totally wasted? And did you ever embarrass yourself? And did you ever, you know, it eliminates those questions that feed shame and it instead reframes it and invites everyone to be more supportive, to build community and to connect on a deeper level, regardless of how you learned these tools or skills. That's right. Well said. I definitely believe in, we want to focus on solutions with great empathy and respect that we're all recovering from something. Whether it's a heartache, whether it's financial insecurity, whether it's a substance use disorder or another kind of illness, we all have our burdens, we all have our journeys. And so we keep the focus on shared solutions, being open about solutions. And as you said, we don't need to qualify. We don't need to share. We can be absolutely discerning about the parts that are vulnerable. We don't need to put anybody else at ease by sharing where we have done things that we feel regret about. We can just say, we know we needed to make change. And so we did. And this is how. I think that's a wonderful place to start to wind down the interview. And I always end with a few rapid fire questions okay. just for fun. So are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. <laughs> what does it mean to feel successful to you? To live authentically so that I know that I am healthy, connected, offer value of service. So it's about being whole. What is something you've accomplished that you're most proud of? I think it's this reframing something that's been stigmatized and creating a paradigm of open recovery. And what are you most looking forward to this year? Launching this business into more organizations <laughs> and helping organizations develop new programs so I can help more people. What's going to keep you up at night after this interview? <laughs> <laughs> you know, wondering if I was able to offer value. Do you have a favorite book? Well, I have two. One is called Eating in the Light of the Moon by Anita Johnston. And then the other one is actually the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what's your mantra? The best is yet to come. Ooh. And the last question, what's the best way for our listeners to get in contact with you? Wonderful. I have a website, which is faizenoff.com. And there I have resources as well as more information about the kinds of services and programs that Open Recovery and I can offer. Wonderful. Well, I think the work you are doing is impacting so many lives and I'm excited for you to impact even more people in 2020 and beyond. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Oh, thank you for giving me this platform. Thank you so much. What did you think? 
I hope you really enjoyed that episode. And if you want to let me know what you thought about this, just send me a message on Instagram at Tara Ray Bradford. My intention with the show is to share how other people are handling everything and to give you actionable steps to make positive changes in your life. I'd love to know what you thought, and it would be great to hear what questions you have about how to handle the things on your plate. And if you want to check out the links and everything from the show, go on over to handleeverything.com. And be sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already, and check out Faye Zenoff at fayzenoff.com. Thank you again to Faye for being on the show, and thank you to everyone listening in. This podcast would not exist if you weren't here supporting it. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more to reach more listeners like you, we'd be so incredibly grateful if you left us a review. From me and the podcast team, have a wonderful day. Hey, in case I haven't said thank you enough yet, thanks for listening to the Handle Everything podcast at handleeverything.com.